So I think it's kind of appropriate that we are bringing you this episode today. Because, and by the way, hi, it's Pablo. Um, because we're not working right now. We're not practicing. We're not working on our craft. We're instead bringing you an episode about what I consider just one of the most memorable, iconic American pop cultural moments that I can recall. And it turned out that Justin Tinsley was the perfect person to help us pull back the curtain on what exactly Alan Iverson was talking about and why so many of us missed the real story there for so long. It is Thursday, August 25th, and yeah, this is ESPN Daily. Justin Tinsley, it is the 20th anniversary of what a lot of people call a rant, but feels more to me straight up like just one of the great oratories, one of the great soliloquies in sports history. Yeah, I, I call it a stream of consciousness. We sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. And Justin, I'm not sure there's a more famous bit of sound anywhere else in modern sports history. I'm not sure there's a piece of sports culture that's more imitated, more celebrated, more derided than what Allen Iverson told the world on May 7th, 2002. Allen Iverson is one of the more analyzed, critiqued, and documented athletes, at least of the last 30 years. And when you ask a lot of people, let's just say a casual basketball fan, a casual surveyor of pop culture, when you say Allen Iverson, more often than not, people will be like, practice? Yes. We talk about practice. Not a game. Not a, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. Before even the multiple seasons of averaging 30 points in a game. Tipped by Williams, Iverson. Yes! For three, and he's got 52. And for Allen, his eighth three-pointer of the night. He won league MVP. 2001 NBA MVP, Allen Iverson. The finals against the Lakers and that amazing game one against them. Iverson. No, they talk about practice. Comedians have bits about this thing, right? We're talking about practice. <laughs> we ain't talking about the game. There's a whole monologue on Ted Lasso, yep. which basically quoted the whole thing. You're sitting in here, you're supposed to be the franchise player. And yet here we are, talking about you missing practice. We're talking about practice. All of which makes it that much more stunning, Justin, that for as much as we've been talking about, talking about, talking about practice, there is a lot that you're here to explain that we still really don't understand. That press conference was around 35 minutes, but only a minute and change has been immortalized that press conference was so far beyond just that moment of Allen Iverson saying the word practice 22 times. It was an expose of grief, vulnerability. 
And we talk a lot about mental health awareness in sports. This was an exact representation of that. So when we look at this moment in time, 20 years ago, 20 years later, that moment in time was years in the making. It wasn't just practice. It was far beyond that. We love to talk about talking about practice because, of course, we do, right? I mean, I can't blame you if you've quoted Allen Iverson after your wedding rehearsal or your driving test or an actual practice. It is incredible sound. But as it turns out, that full half-hour press conference, which is just Iverson on stage, no holds barred, is actually even better. A lot better. So today... Two decades later, Justin Tinsley tells us what we don't know about an iconic moment from one of the most influential athletes ever. And it changes everything. This is ESPN Daily. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Justin, before we dive into Allen Iverson in 2002 and what led up to the soundbite that has been echoing in our heads for 20 years now, I do feel like we need to understand Iverson, the man himself. So where do we start the Allen Iverson story? You have to go back to February 1993. This is Allen Iverson's junior year in high school. He is the number one football player in the state. He's the number one basketball player in Virginia. Which is insane, by the way, for that to be the case. And he wins state titles in both. So he is the biggest thing going. And he has a litany of colleges, courting his services in both sports. So in February 1993, Allen Iverson and a group of friends are at a bowling alley in Hampton, Virginia. He gets into a fight with several young white men and women. Is widely assumed to be racially motivated. About 40 people were involved, black and white. But only Iverson and his friends were arrested, charged, and convicted. Now, this is where things start to get sticky. It's Allen Iverson and his friends, all of whom are black, They're the ones charged with igniting the brawl. They're the ones put on trial. Allen Iverson is sentenced to prison. Allen Iverson has been called one of the country's best high school athletes. But now, instead of graduating from Bethel, he'll spend at least the next 10 months in jail. With good behavior, that's the usual amount of prison time for his sentence. 15 years, 10 of those suspended. So the number one athlete in the state doesn't even have a senior year in high school. He's sitting in prison 
And 18-year-old Allen Iverson is probably thinking, my life's over. And had it not been for two of the most powerful Black men of their time, the Allen Iverson story, it may not even be a story to begin with. I'm talking about L. Douglas Wilder, who was the first Black governor in America since Reconstruction. He was the governor of Virginia at that point in time. And one of his last acts was granting clemency to Allen Iverson, mm. which got him out of prison. And Iverson, Allen Iverson's mother, is calling coaches around the country, basically begging them, you have to save my son. You have to save my son. The only one who listened was John Thompson. During his senior year of high school, Iverson spent four months in jail as a result of his involvement in a bowling alley brawl. Now he's here at Georgetown, where John Thompson teaches basketball and discipline. When you look at it, uh, at first you think it's kind of strict, but then again, uh, it's just because they care about you and they're trying to look out for you and prepare you for other things in life besides just basketball. Allen Iverson goes to Georgetown. He's one of the most electrifying players in the country and especially the Big East. And he goes on to be the number one pick in the draft. With the first pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Philadelphia 76ers select Allen Iverson from Georgetown University. But here's the thing about Iverson. He came into the NBA with that image. A lot of people saw him as, oh, if this is the future of the league, then I don't want any parts of it. This guy's a thug. This guy's a criminal. He runs with the bad crowd. He's seemingly getting a new tattoo every other week, it feels like. You can't shortchange how people looked at this guy from the moment he stepped into the league. Yeah, pretty immediately, Justin Allen Iverson gets established as this character who was not just subversive, but also dangerous at barely six feet tall. And, and by May 2002, in specific, how would you say things were going for Allen Iverson's Philadelphia 76ers? From a basketball perspective, the season was a disappointment. The season before, they won 56 games. And in the 01-02 campaign, they win 43 games. It was a 13-game drop-off. They got knocked down the first round by the Boston Celtics. So all eyes were on Allen Iverson. I mean, he was losing to the Celtics, Justin. And at the same time, and this part had been going on for years by this point, Allen Iverson was also feuding very publicly with the head coach of the Sixers, Larry Brown. And Larry Brown had tried to trade Iverson, right, in 2000, and there were still all of these constant trade rumors, in part because Larry Brown was complaining to the media about Iverson's practice habits right after they lost to Boston in 2002. The key player got to be there. He's got to be practicing. He's got to set the example, and he knows that. To be fair, this isn't the first time that Iverson and his practice habits came up. This has been discussed in seasons prior. I remember Larry Brown, he was speaking to the media in the summer of 2000 as he was coaching Team USA, and they asked him about Allen Iverson. And a lot of people wondered why Iverson wasn't on that 2000 Olympic squad. Larry Brown talks about how he needed Iverson to participate in practice fully because that would set the tone for the rest of his teammates. I'm tired of Everybody talking about my relationship with Allen Iverson. I, I wonder what your relationship would be with any employee that you might have who doesn't choose to come to work on time or doesn't choose to come to work at all 
who doesn't choose to do the things everybody else in your organization does and then says he's upset with the way he's being treated. I don't think he ever wanted Allen Iverson to fail. He just wanted AI to be like, look, man, it's already the weight of the world on your shoulders. Like, don't put anything else on that. I just need you. Help me help you. It almost felt like Larry Brown was so desperate that he was trying to motivate and coach him through the media. Yeah. Through these quotes. I mean, the quotes, you read them, Justin, you go back and he says stuff in the year 2000 about the Olympics decision. I've never criticized his game or heart, but he tells me he wants to be the leader, the captain, and a great player. And my response to him is, you've got control over all that, not me. Yeah. He's basically begging Iverson. He's like, look, we can do this. We just need to be on the same page. And so Allen Iverson comes into this infamous press conference with all of his baggage, Justin. And essentially what he says is that all of the negativity in the room, it actually stems from this one simple fact. We lost, man. That's what happened when you lose, though. You know? When you lose, there's a whole bunch of room for negativity. But it's this label of franchise player that is recurring as often almost as the word practice when you go back and watch this. Yeah. He was being called a franchise player, but within the last just three years alone, he went from not being selected by his own coach for the Olympic team. You go from that, and then you go from the 2000-2001 season where he has an incredible 2001 postseason run, beats the Lakers, 41 points. They eventually lose in five, but by the summer of 2001, AI is at the peak of his powers. And then you go into the 02 season where everything comes crashing down. And now those trade rumors are coming back up. Now practice is coming back up. And it, he just feels like it's damn if I do, damn if I don't. If I'm a franchise player, why don't I have any stability? Yeah, I mean, he's saying if I'm a franchise player, as everyone keeps calling me, why do I not feel like one? Exactly. Y'all wonder why I say I'm not the franchise player. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm the franchise player because look at this press conference. I mean, look what we're talking about. That's why I say I'm not the franchise player around here. I mean, I'm, I'm the best player, and I, I believe that. I feel like I'm the best player in the world. But, I mean, franchise players don't, don't go through this, you know? Franchise players' daughters don't have to go to school and hear, is your daddy coming back? What's going on with your daddy and Coach Brown and da-da-da-da. I mean, she's seven years old, and that's what she got to deal with. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it hurt because I know I'm better than that. He's saying as proof of this, as proof of his frustrations, I'm being brought here to talk about practice. And I am an MVP, and I'm a franchise player. And look, when he starts off on the practice stuff, right, the reporters start laughing. It's important to note that. Yeah. And he also is smiling. He's saying, I hear you. It's funny. It's strange to me, too. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice, man. We're, talk We're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. When you come into the arena... And you see me play, you see me play, don't you? Absolutely. You see me give everything I got, right? Absolutely. But we talking about practice right now. But it's an issue that you're We talking about practice. 
man, I look, I hear you. I, it's funny to me, too. I, I mean, it's strange, it's strange to me, too. But we're talking about practice, man. We're not even talking about the game, the actual game, when it matters. We're talking about practice. And then he goes on to talk about, look, how the hell can I make my teammates better through practicing? Does it hurt me if they don't practice? How the hell can I make my teammates better by practicing? I make them, they, they're supposed to be used to playing with me anyway. That's my, those my teammates. So, so my game is going to deteriorate if I don't practice with those guys? Is my game going to get worse? I'm asking you. I'm, no, I'm, asking, I'm talking about me. It, it ain't about just everybody else. It's about me too, right? So what about my game? What about my game? Is my game going to get better when some people don't practice on my team? I mean, do that hurt me? You think that hurt me? What you mean I don't need as much? What you mean I'm the superstar? Why? Why am I the superstar? Why am I the superstar? All right. All right. So why are we talking about me getting traded or leaving or is a problem with me? No, I'm not. Obviously, I'm not. If I'm the best in the world, if I'm the best, if I'm a superstar, then why is this happening, man? Why is this going on? Why do my daughter got to deal with this? Why does she have to deal with this every day she go to school? Why? I'm the franchise player, right? I'm supposed to be the franchise player. Why am I having this meeting, man? Why am I in here talking to y'all about this, man? Lost in all of this, right? Lost in the complaints about his daughter getting questions at school and like the existentialism of why an MVP has to be held to account for a practice is something that's a lot deeper that kind of slides in way under the radar at the time and honestly in the decades since. When we talk about the whole practice, we're talking about practice things become a punchline. This is why it doesn't feel good to laugh at that. And it hasn't felt good to laugh at that in so long. On October 14th, 2001, Allen Iverson's best friend, Rasan Langford, he was murdered in Hampton, Virginia. He was 29 years old. And this is roughly two weeks before the regular season started. It was already hard for Allen Iverson to trust a lot of people, given everything he had gone through since he was a teenager. But Langford, he was one of those people that Allen Iverson could like truly trust. He trusted him with everything. So when he says in this press conference that he feels like his life is falling apart and you understand what the context is for him saying that, that wasn't just the truth. That was the brutal truth. I'm upset. I'm upset for one reason, man. Because I'm in here. I lost. I lost my best friend. I lost him. And I lost this year. Everything's going downhill for me. As far as just that. You know, as far as my life. And then I'm dealing with this right here. I don't want to deal with this, man. I don't want to go through this shit. I don't want to deal with this. All season long, he wore a black armband with Ra embroidered on it. He carried this grief with him throughout the entire season. He didn't talk about it with any of his teammates, and it just stewed in him. And there's really no ambiguity around that aspect of it, because you go back and again, this 35-minute presser is one of the great press conferences 
in recorded history. Mm -hmm. And it's for the reasons that you say, and it's because there is a clarity around this part of the story. He says, I'm upset for one reason. Because I'm in here, I lost, and I lost my best friend. Everything's going downhill for me as far as my life. And you go back, Justin, can you wait for a follow-up question about that? And it never came. And it never comes. Here's another thing about this, too. That murder trial had started just a couple of days before that press conference. Mm. So he's dealing with the weight of that. And, you know, I got to go into this press conference that people are asking me, how come you didn't practice during the, the five-game homestand back in, like, February or March? No, you go back and you watch this, and Allen Iverson is perhaps inadvertently and totally unironically doing Shakespeare. He says, yeah. basically, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Yeah. I can't win them all. I'm human. I'm just like y'all, man. You just like me. You ain't no different. You just like me. You bleed just like I bleed. You cry just like I cry. You hurt just like I hurt. I ain't no different than you. I ain't no different. But I'm Allen Iverson. I'm, I'm a basketball player. You know, I, I get some money to play basketball. That's why you're different, right? That's why you're different, right? I ain't different than you. <laughs> I'm not different than you. And the other part of the full context here, because so much of this, again, in, in, in the retelling feels combative with reporters. And it is. There is an adversarial kind of back and forth. But at one point in this presser, around the 15-minute mark, the Sixers PR person tries to stop the press conference. Yeah. That's what I am. That's what you are. That's what I am. So it ain't got nothing to do with no practice. Okay, guys. I don't it don't have to, I, I, ain't, I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. He can talk. Let him talk. Let him talk. You can talk. You can talk. I'm upset. I'm upset because I'm having this discussion right now. I ain't upset about nothing else but just this. Just me having this conversation, for me being here. That's the only reason I'm upset. I ain't upset with you or nobody else in here, man. This is y'all job. This is what y'all do. I ain't upset with none of y'all. I'm upset with the fact that I'm here, man. That's it. At that point, it's like you've already opened the cage now. It feels like therapy, Justin. Yeah, and, and, and it was. It's important to remember, Allen Iverson, like a lot of athletes of his time and since, could have just given cliches. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He could have left the interview. He could have given just boilerplate, bland nothingness. And instead, he gave us exactly what we say we want from athletes. We say we want honesty. Mm -hmm. We say we want them to open up a vein and share what's really going on in their lives. And he did that. And in the end... It got reduced to a soundbite. Yeah. And the thing we said we wanted as a media organism, we ultimately clearly didn't care that much. No, because we wanted the soundbite. We wanted like, oh, what's going to sound sexy on this tease coming out of commercial? Or what's going to sound sexy in this byline that I have to post for, you know, whatever paper I'm writing for at the top. Everyone saw Allen Iverson's heartbeat that day. But for so long, we laughed at it. As opposed to like, you know what? My heart is in the same part of my body that his is. And mine beats the same way that his does. And I would want somebody to ask me if I'm okay when I tell them I'm not okay. 
just because he made mistakes in his life up until that point, that doesn't absolve him from that humanistic gift of just exercising empathy, man. Coming up, the part of that press conference that I think we should remember. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So one thing I do want to bring up here, Justin, before we go any further with this story, is this rumor that has been out there in various forms now mm-hmm. that Allen Iverson had been drinking before he took the podium on that day and that he was drunk at this press conference. And I'm just curious how you understand that theory and whether or not it holds any water. That day was so polarizing that, you know, in the in the years since that press conference, there, there have been reports, there has been speculation that Iverson may have showed up to that press conference drunk. He has vehemently denied that he had any sort of alcohol in his system at that moment. And he was completely lucid and sober and clear in his thoughts that day. And look, I mean, it's not that Allen Iverson was a choir boy who did not like to have a good time, right? Like, that's part of the scouting report, too. But if you go back and watch the video, as both of us did before talking about it, Justin, he is lucid. Yeah. I mean, his eyes are are laser-focused. And is there some alcohol in the system? God knows. But the idea that this is the rambling incoherence of a man who is under the influence, that is easily disprovable based just on the video evidence. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he wasn't stumbling over his words. He was completely clear in his thoughts. He was the conductor of that press conference. But I don't even think that's the, the point of this conversation. Like, if we reduce this down to, right. oh, he, he may have been drunk, then you're, again, 
you're still stripping away his humanity, which has been the biggest crime of this entire discussion for the last two decades. So two decades ago, Justin, what was the reaction to all of this from the media and the league itself at the time? Here's the thing that people need to understand about AI. Yes, we can see him now and we see the love that he gets. But that press conference in 2002 changed a lot with the league. So when you look at the wardrobe change in 2005. Yeah, the dress code, the policy created by then Commissioner David Stern in 2005 that required players to wear business casual attire to games and banned stuff like shorts and flashy jewelry. It wasn't necessarily said it was the Allen Iverson rule. But it was de facto the Allen Iverson rule. Around the mid-2000s, the league is beginning to make it very known that they're pivoting away from Allen Iverson, the way he carries himself, because he's very influential to the young players in the league at the time. Now, the young players in the league at the time are the Dwayne Wade, the Carmelos, the LeBron, so on and so forth. And the league, in a sense, they're saying, like, we can't have more of him in the league. We have to limit Allen Iverson to just Allen Iverson. And so how would you describe how Allen Iverson's career proceeded from May 7th, 2002? He stayed in Philadelphia for a few more years. He had a few, at least in terms of individually, he had some great years there and In 2006, 2007, he was traded to Denver, where he teamed up with a very young Carmelo Anthony. Uh, He was still a very electric and exciting player. They made for one of the great scoring duos, at least in recent NBA history. But after Denver, that's when it really started to unravel. He was at Memphis for, I believe, all of two weeks. He was in Detroit for what felt like the blink of an eye. And then he returned to Philly in 2010. And there was an emotional press conference about how he just wanted to close his career out in the fashion it deserved. You know, when I had the opportunity, when I had the opportunity to come back here, you know, it was just something I, I couldn't turn down. And I'm just... I'm just, I'm just happy. And, uh, I, you know, the last couple of years has been, been hell because, you know, all I want to do is, is play basketball. I was born to be a basketball player. You know, I know I can play. And I'm going to prove that. It really just felt probably like Allen Iverson was just gone from the NBA. One night he was still on the Sixers and then you woke up the next morning, he was no longer in the league and he didn't get the the great send off. He didn't get a send off. He got sent off to Turkey. Yeah, he got sent off to Turkey. So by the time he's playing in Europe at the end of his career, the NBA has basically exiled him. Around the mid 2010, I would venture to say roughly around the time when Adam Silver started to take over the league, we start to see AI more in NBA circles again, whether he's doing more interviews or whether he's going to Sixers games. And it's ironic because the NBA begins to market that same sense of individuality, that same swagger, that same authenticity that Iverson was maligned for during his time in the league. 
And now it's seen as like, oh, we can market this. Wait, wait a minute. Hip hop now is like big corporate business. Wait, hip hop? The kids still like hip hop? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, all of that is going on. And Allen Iverson slowly but surely begins to be embraced back within the NBA. By the time of his Hall of Fame induction in 2016, you really begin to see the full swath of appreciation for this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, Allen Iverson. Man, uh, I love y'all too. Wow. Um, first, I just want to thank We've talked on the show a bunch about, you know, Michael Jordan, king of pettiness. That mm -hmm. was his soliloquy, the pettiest yeah. monologue you've ever seen. Allen Iverson walked up there and he looked and spoke of other players in the league like a fan, like a fanboy yeah. almost. Like how much he loved and adored all of the other people who were his older colleagues and even his younger colleagues too. You know, you want to be fast like Isaiah, shoot like Bird rebound like Barkley, pass like Magic, be dominant like Shaq. But man, I wanted to be like Mike. You know what I mean? Um, LeBron and his family, Rich, Mav, Randy, Chris Paul and his family, Monty Williams and his family. We spoke about it earlier when he first got into the league. So many of those same guys who he expressed such deep love for at his Hall of Fame induction were basically saying, like, we don't know where the league is going with this guy with the league in his hands. But people really began to see the full picture of who this guy was. He wasn't just a thug that had cornrows and tattoos and all this jewelry. Like, this guy was a full, complete person. Like, he shows love, and that's why he gets so much love in return. Like, LeBron James has called him the greatest player ever, pound for pound. Stephen Curry has said to hear that Allen Iverson puts him in his top five, he was like, that matters deeply to him. We saw Giannis at All-Star Weekend this year in Cleveland. He went up to AI and said, yo, you're the reason I play basketball. I saw you had a deep conversation there with Allen Iverson. What did you tell him? I stopped playing basketball because of him. You know, I had the cornrows, I had the headband. I used to be short back then and skinny. You know, I just want to be like Allen Iverson. You know, I've watched a bunch of documentaries of Allen Iverson, and he said he wanted to be MJ. Like, I wanted to be Allen Iverson growing up. Keep in mind, Giannis, two-time MVP, NBA champion, one of the greatest basketball players ever, and arguably the best player in the league today. He looked at Allen Iverson like the Pope had just walked in the room. <laughs> And so as we come to the end here, Justin, it does feel to me like we should close the same way that Allen Iverson did actually 20 years ago, because this soundbite is not anywhere near as remembered as talking about practice, but it probably should be. A lot of y'all, I don't care what you say, you can try to put your feet in my shoes, they won't, they won't never fit, because you can't go through what I go through in my life. But just try. Just try to stick your foot in my shoes. Just for one, it ain't even gotta be a damn day. Just for one minute. 
just for one minute, stick your foot in my shoes and try to deal with what I go through in my life. My best friend, dead. Dead. And we lost. And this is what I got to go through for the rest of the summer until the season start over again. This is what I got to go through. This is my life in a nutshell. Y'all go home and have y'all lovely life, man. Live it up to the fullest. The easiest thing to do is critique somebody without having to look at your own faults. The hardest thing to do is to look in the mirror and be like, you know what, maybe I don't have everything figured out. Maybe I should put myself in somebody's shoes. Maybe I should look at the totality of somebody's life experiences and understand this may have led them to this moment and this is why this happened. Maybe everything isn't as important as a punchline or a soundbite. We're in the business of covering sports, but sports are a microcosm of life. And if we can't see the humanity and the imperfections and the people that we cover and the topics that we cover, then what are we doing? We might as well just leave it to a box score and leave it at that. Justin Tinsley, thank you so much for talking to us about a lot more than practice. Thank you for having me on here, man. It's always an honor and privilege to come on here and talk to you on the ESPN Daily Podcast. Pleasure's all mine. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.